I had this little Portuguese man and he pleads not guilty. And so the prosecutor says, can you tell us what was said? I go on about, yes, and the gentleman pulled up and he rolled his window down and he leaned over and he said, could I give him a blowjob for $20? Right? And Judge Dnieper, as soon as he heard the word blowjob, he swung around in his chair and in a packed courtroom, he looked at me and he said, can you explain to me what the word blowjob means? Paralympics Australia heard about this master swimmer who won all these medals. I think they must have thought I was about 25 because they sent me an email and he said, oh, you should come to a talent search day. And I thought, aren't talent search days for like kids and like early 20s? And I remember the day I walked into the Victorian Institute of Sport and all these parents were there with their kids. And this 45 year old walks in and they're kind of looking at me like, where's your kid? Probably 2003 would be the worst year of my life. I had my whole large bowel removed. I ended up with other health issues because of the ileostomy bag. I had uh, multi-resistant staph, had tumors on an ovary, so they took the ovary, went back into hospital. This is all in one year. Ended up with multi-resistant staph again, and let me tell you, the drug they give you, vancomycin, for that just makes you so sick. But I came through it. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hi, it's Andrew, and welcome to another edition of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Today, I am joined by a three-time gold medal Paralympian and nine-time world champion in paracycling. She's an international speaker, author, and an expert in adversity and mindset, Carol Cook. Born and raised in Toronto, Canada, Carol's journey began as a young swimmer with Olympic dreams. However, fate had other plans when the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games were boycotted. Carol transitioned to a 14-year career with the Toronto Police Force, including four years, I'm fascinated, I've got to ask her about this, working undercover in areas related to prostitution, drugs and gambling. Carol packed up everything and moved to Australia. Not long after 1998, life threw a curveball when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Carol ignored her initial doctor's orders and refused to give up, discovering paracycling and challenging the notion of what it means to age and slow down. She lives by the motto, dare to face your fears, believe in yourself and you can accomplish anything. Carol Cook, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be here. It's great to see you. We're doing this virtually via Zoom. Last time I saw you was in a real room with real people talking about speaking. It was with Leanne Christie. Hello, Leanne, CEO of Ovations. And she said to me, you need to speak to this woman because she is an inspirational woman. Both got a sporting background. So I made a beeline to get to know you that night. Here we are now having a podcast. We are. And we were having dinner that night as well. Like, in a room with real people. It was amazing. How funny was it though? You're in a room with speakers. The majority of them are extreme, extreme extroverts. Trying to get a word in was pretty difficult that night. <laughs> it was It was very interesting. And there were so many more people I would have wanted to speak to that night, but I had a flight to catch. That was just That's really right. weird you, night. I had, you had to, to leave duck early. Off. And I remember yeah. grabbing you on the way out and said, hey, 
Love your story. Love chatting tonight. I would really like to introduce you to our listeners on the podcast. So here we are. And I asked Leanne Christie, I said, what do you think it is about Carol that makes her so fascinating? And she said, it's easier to have a positive attitude when things go well, but not many people can do that when life doesn't go well. That is where Carol Cook is outstanding. I thought that's a really nice quote to start us on our discussion today. Wow, that's a, that's a really nice quote from Leanne. So thank you for letting me know what she said. Now you need to say, come on, Leanne, book me for more events. Exactly. Come on, Leanne. <laughs> I'll make sure Leanne gets this. Now, a rough outline for today. Number one, working undercover. I really want to start with that. Like, We'll, we'll, we'll wait, wait on the sporting stuff. I'm fascinated. And underscore, I am doing some work with counterintelligence at the moment with some of the companies we can't speak of with people who don't exist. You know where I'm going on this. And, and I, I really want to know, did you or didn't you do anything to change state, either going into other undercover or coming out? So I've got some real questions for you on that. Two, MS diagnosis and the journey you went through. Three, winning mindset. I, I just find your story so inspiring and the way you've stayed involved in competitive sport and smashed a lot of women half your age. Well, I keep, I keep trying. I keep trying. It yeah. must piss them off. We're going to talk about that as well. For this whole notion of longevity and challenging the status quo and five performance uncovered. So let's go with working undercover. My research listening to a few podcasts on you and reading about you as well, you come from a family where police force was seen as, as the career of choice. Oh, most definitely. And Funny enough, growing up, I swore I would never, ever be a cop because there were enough already. That was the one thing I would never do. But my grandfather, um, my father, my grandfather had a brother on the job. Um, my dad had a couple cousins. And he met my mom, who joined the police force as the 14th woman ever hired in 1957, something women didn't do back then. Um, I laugh about that. And I say to my mom, you just wanted to catch your man, which she did. Yeah. And I swore there's no way. There is enough of them already. And I guess after high school, I didn't really want to go to university. I wanted to have, well, we didn't know it in Canada as a gap year, which is known here, but I just wanted time off. I wanted a year off. And so I joined the Toronto Police Force as a clerk. And I was working in an area where all the major crime units would call in and I would type up what their major arrests were for the media the next morning. So I'd be doing this at night. And I got fascinated by the stories coming in. And as this silly, you know, just turned 18 year old thought that if I joined, I could go out and change the world on my own. <laughs> and when I joined, I actually didn't even tell my mom and dad I had put my application in for uniform. But what I didn't realize is that my dad was head of the intelligence unit and every application went through his office. And one of his guys came into him one day and said, uh, boss, did you know your daughter's applied? And he's like, what? And he called me. I was at work and he called me and he said, I'm really happy, but your mother's going to kill me because she's going to think I talked you into this. So it was quite funny. But yeah, I ended up there and I guess after about a year, I realized I was never going to change the world on my own. 
but I could at least go out and try and make a difference. Did you watch any of those? Were there any dramas like now it's CSI everything? I think CSI Sydney is about to, to be released. I think they'll even do CSI Wagga Wagga and Dubbo. That franchise is getting so long. But were there any TV shows that you watched when you were growing up that were influential or was, was Police Academy around then? No, Police Academy, I think, came on just as I was joining the job. But there were things like, I don't know if you remember, Chips? Oh, yeah, uh, Punch. Yeah. What was his name? Punch. Oh, I can't even remember their names, but they were motorcycle cops. I remember watching that as a kid. And Cagney and Lacey was two female detectives named Cagney and Lacey. That was their surnames. So those are the only ones that I can think of growing up. I mean, growing up, I was more into like the Partridge family and the Bray Bunch, you know, as a kid, not cop shows. So you go in as a clerk. A couple of years later or years later, you find yourself in undercover. And I know it's a fair while since you've done that, so you've got permission to talk about it. I'm, I'm always fascinated with people who take on those roles. Look, you know, when I first started, I was 24-year-old, naive, suburban, outer suburban Toronto kid that had grown up, you know, never seen really anything bad in my life. And I got asked to come into the Morality Bureau, and I laugh at that name because it was a bureau set up for all the morals, so prostitution, drugs, gambling, and a, a couple other things. And we had a brand new law in Toronto or in Canada that forbade men or women, I guess, for communicating in public for the purposes of obtaining the sexual services of a prostitute. So what was happening is in Toronto, um, a lot of these old areas had been revamped and re revised and beautiful old homes had been, you know, redone up. And so people were living there where the prostitutes used to hang out, but the girls were still hanging out there. So these people, you know, would be walking down the street and they get cracked onto by guys passing in cars. They were finding used condoms and syringes in their front yards. And so this new law started. So they got a whole bunch of us young police women to come and stand on street corners. That was my first foray into working undercover. Not dressed as a prostitute, but just, you know, I was in the middle of winter. You know, I'm wearing big boots and Toronto's pretty cold in the winter, standing in blizzards and cars are still stopping. And at that time, I was, I was told, you're not allowed to say anything to them. You have to let them say what they want and how much they want to pay you. And so once they do that, they're in public. Um, I would put my hands through my hair, my backup. They'd come and knock on his window and say, uh, excuse me, and he'd get charged. He'd get a ticket, invariably. But it was really amazing the different people that were looking for a prostitute, let me tell you. And it was a bit scary. You know, some of these men had baby seats in the back seat. We had we had an ambulance driver one day. We had a couple of firemen and you kind of think, oh, guy, you know, guys, you see what happens and what's done. And so I like to say my vocabulary really became interesting because I had to learn the words of the street girls. And uh, it was uh, for a 24 year old who knew nothing about this to all of a sudden be thrown into this world was a real eye opener. And I guess the one thing I had to just remember is not to use that language when I went home for Sunday dinner. 
It's so funny you say that because Andrew, I work with here at Strive Stronger. When I go to, to football and athletes I work with, I, I come back and apparently I drop a few more F-bombs. Is that true, Wizard? Is every, every second word apparently fuck when I come back after I've been working in sport? Absolutely. A- absolutely. There was no pause to that. So I get reminded, hey, you're not at, at footy right now. Yeah, I, can o- yeah. I can only imagine you at the dinner table with your mum and father who both met in the police force and then you're just dropping some just A-grade swear words and they're going, what's happened to our gorgeous young daughter? Not even just swear words, but words the girls talk about in sexual innuendos and sexual acts and the words that they use on the street. So, you know, and I had a younger sister and my mom would be like, whoa, what's going on? Oh, I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm just trying to tell you this story. But what this guy said, but maybe I better not tell you that story. <laughs> so it was uh, it was interesting, and of course, there was a lot of uproar about you know this happening, that it was stupid, and that these men were just getting fined. And I remember the very first court case that we had, and we were up with this um, up in front of this judge called Judge Denieper, and I can mention him because he's long gone, and. To be honest, he could be a real prick at times in the courtroom. And the courtroom was packed because this was the first case, the first cases that were being heard. And I was like one of the first up. And I even remember what I was wearing. I had a a blue knit suit on and it was a V-neck. And I had this little Portuguese man. He had to be 70. And, you know, he's standing there wringing his hat in front of the judge and he pleads not guilty. And so the judge says to me, you know, or the the prosecutor says, can you tell us what was said? And so I go on about, yes, and the gentleman pulled up and he rolled his window down and he leaned over and he said, could I give him a blow job for $20, right? And Dnieper, as soon as he heard the word blow job, he swung around in his chair because he always sat with his back to you. He swung around in his chair and in a packed courtroom, he looked at me and he said, can you explain to me what the word blowjob means? <laughs> and I, I could feel the red. So I'm, just, I'm just looking at Thomas. We're, we're early into the podcast and we didn't think we'd be getting a definition of what a blowjob is. If this doesn't make the highlights package, I'm giving up podcasting. <laughs> well, I could feel the red crawling up my chest and my face. The courtroom, everybody in the courtroom's laughing. And he's just staring at me. And I just counted to five and I just took a deep breath and I looked at him. I turned right to him and I said, well, your honor, um, blowjob is the street term used for the sexual act of fellatio. And his face just dropped because he was so disappointed that I hadn't actually described it, obviously, and turned around with his back to me again. The worst bit is I'd finished testifying. He, he finds the, the guy. The man's starting to walk out of the court. I'm back in the body of the courtroom. The man's walking out. And just as he gets to the door, Dnieper goes, hang on a minute. You, come back here. And this poor Portuguese, the old Portuguese guy, he walks up and he, he can tell he's, he's shitting himself. And Dnieper looks at him and he goes, you know what really, really disappoints me? And he goes, no, sir. He goes, that you only offered that beautiful young lady $20. Well, again, the courtroom erupts, <laughs> and I just wanted to crawl right under the bench I was sitting on. <laughs> so. You can't write this. If you saw this in a movie script, you go, no, this shit doesn't happen. I they know, made this I up. Know. But no, yeah. it's not made up, that's for sure. 
Wow. So back to the the initial positioning. I'm just trying. To, I'm just trying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, Andrew. <laughs> it's it's what I love about podcasting. I'm not often lost for words, but even just that, she's worth more than twenty dollars. It's just gold. Absolutely I know, gold. I know. Yeah. Uh, but did you have any training when you made that transition? I, I think I know the answer because we're talking you know, a couple of decades ago. But training, as far as you're putting yourself into dangerous situations. And, and I imagine that undercover work you did extended beyond that as well. So you probably had other operatives and other different missions you went on as well. So was there any training on how to, one, get into character, that state? And, and you totally get what I mean, state as a, yeah, an athlete, yeah. and also to transition back. No, I think um, our training was, you know, a bunch of women sitting in a room who have never done this before, We've all come from uniform. I think I had about four years on the job at the time as a uniform officer. So I was used to dangerous situations because in uniform, you're constantly running into things that you, you're you not quite sure what's going to happen. And and we had, you know, a few men who are like, right, you're going to go stand on this corner. You have two guys as backup. Just stand there. And, you know, they would tell us, you know, the guys might pull up and they might say, how much do you charge? Just say, what are you offering? Don't don't give them any price. And that was about it. And then, you know, figure out a sign you want to give us if you've got the information that we can charge them with. And yeah, and we'll come and knock on the car door. It's like, okay. So that was the extent of the training, probably 15 minutes worth, 20 minutes worth. And then out we went. This next question is totally N equals one. This is for myself, Carol. I'm talking to two groups at the moment. I, I won't mention their names. I don't have permission around counterintelligence, so working with men and women who go into very dangerous, very dangerous occupations, very dangerous roles, and it's twofold. One is, is helping them shift state, and it's more down-regulating because I think a lot of people who are tapped on the shoulder or find out they're going to do covert ops, they've got a skill set and they can adapt, but then it's down-regulating, and that's one of the bigger areas we're going to work on is how do you then transition home to be a normal person? And, and the second part on that as well is how do you also not lose yourself as far as you're doing that and acting? How do you then say, hey, that's not me. That's just a role I play. So what, what advice would you give to people in that situation? I think um, – hey, On the spot, huh? We've, we've, yeah, we've shifted it, from blowjobs and now I'm putting you I know, right on the spot. putting me on the spot. <laughs> Look, I don't think – it wasn't until I started probably doing more – other than just standing on a street corner. I mean, they, we would, when I ended up in morality full time for four years, we would bring girls in to do that. And so more of my roles were more, you know, working with a partner and in undercover, going into a bar, but like buying drugs and being in that situation for two to three weeks or posing as a runaway and having pimps hit on me to try and get me to work the streets. And I don't think, Sometimes you never actually really can leave that role. You can, you go home at night and you go to bed, but you're constantly thinking, okay, did so, what did so-and-so say? And do you think, are we going to be able to make the buy tomorrow or what should we do? You know, you're constant, your brain's constantly going and you're also making sure that nobody's followed you or sees you somewhere else and thinks, why is she here and she's not with? you know, whoever your partner was at the time and, and using names that you might not 
that might not necessarily be your own. I mean, usually we used our first names so that we didn't forget, you know. But I guess you really have to surround yourself with people that understand the job you're doing. And I know, I think I lost a lot of friends from outside of the police force when I joined the police force because they didn't understand that, oh, I can't come to that party Friday night. And I think that's why you see a lot of, whether it be police or emergency services or defense or whoever, they all kind of stick together. And sometimes that's good, but in other other times it's bad. You still need to try and keep those friends who are so far removed from that life that it brings you back to reality. You really do. Hey, it's me. Just a quick note, I'd love you to subscribe to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. And I know you probably hear this on so many other podcasts and like me, you switch off. But can I ask you to please go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. And while you're there, extra bonus, leave a rating and review. That's it. Now let's get back to this week's episode. High incidence of marriage breakdown, relationship breakdown, in first responders as well. And it, it makes sense, especially if you're going into counterintelligence or you know, you're, you're an operative and you're going undercover and you, you're acting. You, you, it, is, it is acting, right? If you're doing a drug deal, you're talking to pimps, you're an actor. So you're taking on that role and, and really good people in that area start to manifest the voice, the, 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 the whole mannerism. Then you shift home to a, in inverted commas, normal relationship. I, I, I've never been involved in, in, in what you're doing. But I can only imagine it's really difficult to transition and be normal again. I think that's why you see police officers marrying police officers or partnering up with them outside of work. And everybody that I dated were on the job or were firefighters. So there was that understanding of the job. I didn't I married something somebody completely different, completely removed from anything like that. And I think, and even even Russell tell you, it probably took me a good year to get out of that police mentality. Oh, probably even longer, to be honest, when I moved to Australia, because I left the job in 94. I moved here a month later, and it took me a long time to just get out of that. The, and I say police mentality of being suspicious of everybody, looking at somebody on the street and going, what are they up to? Or I still have a hard time and he knows it. My husband knows it. If we go into a restaurant, I cannot sit with my back to the door. It's just something you never did when you were working undercover. You always had a view of the room. So you knew what was happening. You never sat with your back to the door. And so we'll go into a restaurant nowadays and we're talking 30 years later and he will jump into the seat that he knows I want to sit in. <laughs> Good on you, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> because it just gets me out of that habit. And I'm better now than I was, but before it would drive me nuts. Like I just couldn't do it. So it's, you know, as for giving, <laughs> how do you do it? You just have to try, you know, it's just about trying to keep a balance of a normal life outside of, the job. And sometimes that's just, depending on what you're doing, that's just way too hard to do. Sometimes you just can't until you're completely removed from it. 
you would totally get this because you see an elite sport. There's a difference between the person, who you are, your values, your experience, where you are, the persona that you step up to as an athlete. And that can take on a different mannerism in itself if you've got people's sponsors and social media and, and, a, and an audience to live up to, and then the performer. So I really think there's some parallels between that. And it's a lot of the work I do that I love, Carol, working with an athlete to go, hey, when you step onto the velodrome, dive into the pool, step onto the track on the field, you're just performing and that's taking on a different persona, but then shifting back and being a normal person. It is so powerful because when you ask someone, what do you do? And your role identity is inextricably linked with your personal identity, you want Worry when that role identity changes because it comes down like a, a, a house of cards. And I think that's where, you know, I look at when I step up to the line to race, whether it's a time trial or a road race, and I look at the people around me who I'm racing against, they're my enemy in the race. That's who I want to beat. I don't want to, I don't want them to be in front of me. Lately, that happens a lot, but, you know, that whole idea is I want to win this. I don't, you know, they are my enemy. But after the race, it doesn't matter who's won. It was just a race. And I think a lot of the younger athletes find that hard to see me go, hey, how are you? You know, like I'm just their friend. I just, yeah, yeah, you beat me. That's okay. Like it was a race, you know. So there is a difference. There is, you have to have that different persona when you step on that playing field, no matter what sport it is. But it doesn't mean you have to be like that off that playing field as well. In 1998, you met with a doctor. And I was listening to a podcast on this in preparation for our interview today. I was listening to the podcast yesterday in the gym by myself. And I found myself really angry and pissed off with this doctor. I'll pick up the story. Connect with Confidence podcast with Kerry Phipps. Shout out to Kerry. It was a great interview. You said... The doctor pulled out the MRI film and held it to the ceiling light and said, yeah, there's too many lesions on your brain for someone your age. So basically your life, as you know, it's over. You've got MS and I suggest you go home and put your fares in order before you become incapacitated. Yep. Those were lovely words to hear, especially when you're by yourself. And on my way there, I felt great. All my symptoms were gone. And I thought I was wasting his time. So I had said to my husband, oh, don't come. Like, there's nothing wrong with me. Just, you know. And then that happens. And I think that that there was only one word going through my head that day. And that was incapacitated. Because I was still swimming as a master swimmer. I was still competing. I was running around. I met my husband at a local AFL club. So I was had been... In, as a woman in Australia, if you want to see your husband between February and October, you have to do something at the club. And I ended up the head trainer. So I was running around the field three times a week with the guys looking after the, the injuries and taping ankles and massaging and, you know, taking out water and, and then still swimming. And now I was going to be incapacitated. And that to me, that day, I went to the really dark side of that world, uh, that word, because he gave me no information at all. To pick up the story after that, what else did he say? Well, he told me that I would never do this silly sports stuff I did again and that I would have to go on a lot of drugs. I would have to quit work and that he already had enough people with MS. So um, he wasn't going to take me on as a patient. I could go back to my own GP and he could look after me. And that was it. 
It was less than two minutes in his office. He then put the film back in the envelope. He walked to the door and he opened the door and said, hurry up, I have patients waiting. And I was still sitting in the same chair that I sat down when I walked in. And I was just kind of stunned. And I just stood up and he slammed the envelope into my chest as I walked out the door. I could tell you what I wanted to do with that envelope at that point in time. I wanted to shove it where the sun don't shine. And then he had the audacity to say, see my secretary on the way out for your bill. And it's funny because I didn't see the secretary on the way out. And the last thing I remember at his office was putting my hand on the handle at the front door and his secretary yelling at me, Mrs. Cook, Mrs. Cook, your bill. And I walked out and I don't remember driving home that day. Uh, I don't remember parking my car. I don't remember coming in the house. The next thing I remember is sitting on the couch. I was in tears and we had a six month old puppy. She was a lab cross border collie and she jumped up on the couch and she put her head in my lap and started to whimper. And it just snapped me right out of it. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. I'll be all right, Kimba. I'm just going to sort this out. And I made decisions that you should probably never make when you've heard traumatic news. And I decided that I was going to give Russ a divorce. I was going to give him the house that we just bought. And I was going to go back to Canada and let my family look after me because I was going to be incapacitated. To me, that meant like bedridden, looking, having somebody look after me 24 seven, that I couldn't do anything. And um, it, luckily Russ is a really good Bush boy. And when he came home, and he said, what's going on? And I told him what had happened. And I said, now wait, before you say anything, I've made some decisions. And I told him my decisions. And he just looked at me and he goes, oh, you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> and I went, no, but haven't you heard what I've said and what this doctor said? He said, well, he's a bigger one. He said, why are you making decisions when we don't know anything about this disease? He said, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen. How can you say that? And he said, and besides, you don't have it. We have it. We'll deal with it. Now, I'm really lucky that I've got somebody in my corner that said that because I do know a lot of people with MS who have lost their partners because they do feel it's too hard, you know. And doing some research before talking to you, it's over 90%. Aaron Walsh is a good mate of mine in mental skills while she works with the Crusaders in Super Rugby. He's just finished a stint with Scotland Rugby Union in the World Cup as well. His gorgeous wife was diagnosed with MS a number of years ago, and he told me a similar story that when he and Christy had the diagnosis, and I, I love how you said that, I got goosebumps. Like, shout out to Russ. What, what a great Aussie bloke, yeah? Mm, that, that, that he said, hey, we're doing this. So it's over 90%, Carol, that a lot of people, and not just MS, it's when there's other life-changing illness or diagnosis. For a lot of people, they it changes the fabric of the relationship so much that the person without the diagnosis can't change their schema, their thoughts, and they don't get an iOS upgrade and they're not like good country man like Russ. Shout out, where's Russ from? Um, well, he's from Melbourne, but his family have spent a lot of time in clones near near Ballarat. But he's, um, you know, it, it, it hasn't been smooth sailing. I've had a lot of health issues, not just MS, I an ovarian cancer scare and I've been through a lot of surgeries and, and you know, every surgery uh, flares the MS and learning how to walk again. I've had exacerbations where I can't use my arms or legs. And so we've had really bad up and down times, but we've always done it together. 
which has been good for somebody. Russ hates hospitals. So like for him to actually come and visit me and like, you know, I'm in rehab for three months, you know, he would actually make dinners and bring them in um, so that I didn't have to eat hospital food all the time. So, you know, we've done it together and I've been extremely lucky, extremely lucky. Mm. So you've had that horrible and, and does doctors like that? It's, it's horrible. And, and I hope that this has really shifted. It sounds like he was an old doctor. He was probably in his, I, I always say to people, people have said to me, did you go back and, and give him what for? And I said, well, no, why waste my, why make, waste my energy and time? But he was probably in his 70s at the time. And so he's probably dead now and I'm not. So I just go, oh, well, you know, I'm still alive and kicking and I'm not incapacitated by any means. Thank goodness medicine is changing. It's now not just about sickness. It is also about well-being. Thank goodness you had a great man like Russ in your corner. So then you you, you picked up a whole different skill set, obviously, to, to go and win three Paralympic gold medals. It's not just sudden diagnosis. Hey, yeah, we're going to be fine. Russ is in your corner. There's a lot that's transitioned in between those moments. I mean, that was, you know, diagnosis was 98. By 2001, my introduction to disability began. I was at, living in a wheelchair full time. But I had some great doctors that I met and I had a rehab doctor who was using Botox for cerebral palsy kids and and relaxing the spasms in their hands. So he tried it in my legs and used me as a teaching agent so I didn't have to pay the ridiculous amount because people were using it for facelifts, the ridiculous amount to to use it medically. And it worked, you know, and, and with a lot of work and six months of physio and stuff, it got me out of the chair. But it was a long time. It was probably 2005 when I got introduced to parasport because I'd never really thought about parasport. And it was the very, the first world masters games that had parasport for the first time ever in swimming and athletics. And I thought, oh, I'm a swimmer. I wonder if I classify. So I actually got in touch with Swimming Australia and I actually got classified as an S10 swimmer. So I went to the masters games which I might add happened to be in Canada. So it was a good chance to go home for a visit. And um, I did really well. And Paralympics Australia heard about this swimmer, master swimmer who won all these medals. And I think they must've thought I was about 25 because they sent me an email. It was Tim Matthews from Melbourne sent me an email and he said, oh, you should come to a talent search day. And I thought, aren't talent search days for like kids and like, early 20s. And he says, oh, usually I send him an email back. And I said, well, I'm not quite that age. He says, I'll come anyway. And I remember the day I walked into the Victorian Institute of Sport for this talent search day, and all these parents were there with their kids. And this 45-year-old walks in, and they're kind of looking at me like, where's your kid? And I went, hey, I'm here for the talent search day. And it was through that you know, doing a whole bunch of things. They had me on a rowing machine. They had me trying to run, which was just disaster. They had and, me and in the just pool. for people listening who've got no idea what talent search is, because you and I are just speaking fluent jock. It, it's when they do a whole bunch of testing. So they will look at what's your VO2 max like, what's your power. So VO2 max is lung volume. Can you hold your heart rate at a high level? What's your speed like? What's your power like? Uh, are you comfortable in water you can you ride a bike so it's it's all this testing it's really interesting because it's just taking hey i don't know you i'm not going to have any preconceived ideas let's try a few things and then ha huh, 
this is where you're really good. Have you thought about doing this? Yeah. And they didn't say anything on the day, but it was like two weeks, I think it was about two weeks later, I got a letter from them to say, we want you to take up the sport of rowing because it's a brand new event in Beijing in 2008. So this was at the end of 2005. And then it was about me trying to find a club that would take me on as a para rower. Well, that was, um, that was easier said than done. And the number of clubs that just didn't like the word, I have a slight disability. Uh, I was using a walking stick at the time until I found one club that Yara Yara Rowing Club, so huge shout out to them, that the guy on the phone said, well, do you think you can get in the boat? And I said, yeah, I can get in. I might need help getting out. He goes, ah, don't worry. A lot of people need help getting out. So come on down. And it was through them I started rowing. And I guess, you know, I've always, always been pigheaded and stubborn. And I went to my first nationals in 2007, January, I think it was January 2007. And I ended up winning the double skull. And at that time, there weren't a lot of para rowers. They called it adaptive rowing. So we were allowed to row in a double with an able-bodied person. We had to be the stroke, which means the person that sets the rate in the boat. And we ended up winning. We beat the reigning champ and the other crew. And so I was like really excited thinking, oh, this is the start. Maybe I get to go to Beijing. Couldn't go to 1980. Maybe I get to go to Beijing. And a couple months later, I hadn't heard anything from rowing Australia. So I sent the guy who was in charge or one of the admins for adaptive rowing an email and said, I see there's classification happening in Canberra. Should I be going to that? And he sent me back the most god-awful email and said, no, you'll never be good enough or strong enough for a national team. So don't worry about it. And I thought if I was 17, I would have just gone, okay, I quit. But because I was at that point, I was like 40, almost 47, I went, bugger you, buddy. So I, I took a couple of days to compose an email and I sent an email back to him. But not only did I send it to him and lift his email attached, I sent it to his boss who was in charge of the program. I sent it to the CEO of Rowing Australia, the CEO of Rowing Victoria, and my coach at Yarra Yarra. And I said to him, um, I found your email absolutely disgusting. And if I'd been 17, I would have quit. This is not the way to attract rowers into a new program. I said, but I will be going to Canberra to get classified. And how dare you tell me what you think I can and can't do after me having only rowed for three months, what I can do in the future. It was funny because a week later, I got an all expenses paid invite to Canberra for classification and they put on the very first para rowing um, camp. And it was from that the following year I was named in the national team. And that day he was still there. He was still part of the program. And I looked at his boss and I said, do you think maybe we should like print out that email and just stick it all over his desk? He goes, no, he knows. <laughs> so, Did he ever say anything to you? Never. I think he was so embarrassed. But it was ridiculous. I mean, you know, we tend to judge people by, it's like judging a book by its cover. You don't know what's between the pages. And I don't think that we give people enough credit for what they may be capable of doing in the future. doesn't matter where you are right now. It's what's going to happen in the future. And if you have that tenacity and you have that 
I believe the belief in yourself, as I say, you know, believe in yourself and you can accomplish anything. And I think that's the real, the real kicker there that we need to get people to believe in themselves. And thank goodness. Hallelujah. There's people like you challenging the status quo. There's people like you openly talking about diversity and inclusion. And it's making a lot of people, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this who've got blind spots, who don't even know sometimes how they're judging other people. I've learned a hell of a lot in the past few years getting involved in different sports and working with a few people with disability as well. And I had no idea, I had an unconscious incompetence. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. A lot of people do. And and unconscious bias as well. I think that... I, I've become an ambassador for the Change Our Game uh, program run by the state government about getting more women and as, and as far as I'm concerned, women with disabilities and older women with disabilities or, or not involved in sport. And that doesn't mean that they have to play sport, but involved in sport in some way as a referee, as an admin, you know, um, where I started off with AFL football when I met my husband. You know, I started out cutting cutting the, the oranges up, giving them to the guys at quarter time and half time and and then moved on to, you know, being the being running around the field with them, being the trainer. So there's so many roles that even people with disabilities can partake of in sport. And I think we we all seem to have this real unconscious bias that just because somebody's sitting in a wheelchair, there's things that they can't do. Or if they have cerebral palsy and their balance isn't that great and they can't, you know, run, that, well, they can't take part then. Well, yeah, they can. And I think that's where, you know, I'm so happy to be a a Change Our Game ambassador because I'm trying to challenge that, trying to challenge that in in every way possible. Well, you did because you moved from swimming to rowing to then cycling. Yeah, well, I kind of fell into cycling. That was, um, it was funny because, you know, we 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 missed out on Beijing, our crew, by 0.8 of a second. And it was heartbreaking. And it was I'd been writing a blog about our journey and the day we missed out, we were in we were in Germany. And I wrote a blog apologizing to everybody who'd been following the journey that we hadn't made it. And it was my younger sister who gave me a swift kick up the butt through cyberspace and said, The journey's not over just maybe the destination's going to change. So if you're loving doing what you're doing, why are you talking about like it's over? And I went, okay, maybe younger sisters do have a point sometimes. And so I kept rowing. The following year, I made the team again, and we came um, sixth at the World Championships, and we had the worst row of our lives. Uh, that's a long story. I won't even tell you about that. But we finished. We finished, but way behind. And um, I... I had a, cause I can't ride two wheels cause my balance is really bad. I had a trike made. So it's like a little kid's trike on steroids. It was a 22 kilo steel frame trike, heaviest thing in the world, but I would ride it back and forth to rowing training just as a bit of cross training. And the other, when you row, you, in my category, you rode in a boat of four, two men, two women It was a mixed category. And so the other girl that was rowing with me, she got in touch with me and she she had switched to cycling in 2011. She goes, Carol, you know, they have a trike category in the Paralympics. I went, what? She goes, yeah. She says, you co- you should come up to road nationals in April in Queensland and race. 
And I said, I know nothing about racing the trike. Like I ride back and forth to rowing. Oh yeah, but I think you'd do really well. So she talked me into it. My trike was so heavy, I couldn't fly it there. Qantas wanted something like $800 to fly it there. And so my friend- Sounds um, like something out of Mulga Bill. It oh, was yeah. Mulga Bill from Eagle Hawk that, that caught the cycling craze. Oh, uh, it, was, it was like, I had a friend in the garment industry and she said, I got a truck going up there. So they came and picked it up, put it on the garment truck, drove it up to Queensland, dropped it off at my hotel. Then they picked it up and brought it back for me. But I went up and did my first ever race. And that first time trial, the head coach came up to me after the time trial. I had no idea what I was doing. I just got on and rode. And he said, where did you come from? <laughs> and I said, Melbourne. And he goes, no, 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 in the cycling world, silly. And I went, no, I'm not a cyclist. I'm a rower. He goes, oh, no, you're not. You are a cyclist. He said, you just smashed the qualifying speed for, the, for the, your category for the national team. And I said, oh, what was that? And he goes, you didn't even know what it was. I said, I told you I'm a rower. I'm not a cyclist. <laughs> and he said, well, I better talk to your um, coach. Keep talking because I don't have a coach. So that was the, yeah, that was the start of my, my cycling career. I, right after that race, I made the, my first national team for two months later for a World Cup, which was being held in Sydney at Olympic Park. And I ended up with shingles. Oh my God, I ended up with shingles there. And he said, oh, you don't have to race if you don't want to. And I said, I didn't drive 1,200 kilometers not to race. So I raced and I ended up winning both the time trial and the road race. And I remember the last day we were standing at the coffee machine in the hotel and he came up beside me and he said, so are you a, are you a rower or are you a cyclist? And I looked at him and I said, I guess I'm a cyclist now. And that was that was the start. And that was 2011, you know, and it's been amazing. It's been an amazing journey since. So before I get you to double click on one of, I just get you to reflect on out of the three Paralympic gold and the nine world championship gold medals, is there one that has real significance or is there a story behind that, that you go, hey, yeah, this means this to me. But before that, younger sister, what, what a great shout out that. What, what's your younger sister's name? Uh, Cynthia. Cynthia. Did Cynthia use any of the language that you taught her when you were undercover? My sister's got pretty good language herself. My sister was a, a film producer for 25 years and, and produced a whole bunch of amazing documentaries that uh, the National Film Board of Canada picked up. So she learned how to say a few good things herself, I might <laughs> add. That's true love, family, friendship connection, isn't it? Because it would have been easy for Cynthia to get down in the pit and have a pity party with you and go, oh, you've been dealt some bad cards. I, I really feel sorry for you. Sympathy, getting down the gutter with someone. Empathy, ha having a feeling and understanding. But she obviously knew you and uh, pseudo-psych. She, she was doing that to fire you up. So you look oh, at that now and go, that was an yeah. absolute gift that she gave you. It's the Most message definitely. you needed to hear from someone you love at the right time. Yeah, most definitely. It was, you know, I remember, I remember getting back to the dock after the race where we had to wait, we had to wait for um, the photo finish to see if we'd made it. And when it came up and, and it showed that we hadn't by 0.8, like you, the bow balls were just like, it was just ridiculous. I remember getting back to the dock and I was the oldest crew member and I'd given so much I couldn't actually get out of the boat. So they lifted me out 
And they said, oh, well, go grab a wheelchair. I said, no, no, just leave me here. I'll be fine. And after everybody left, I just laid on the dock and I cried. I cried like, thank God for dark sunglasses. I just laid there and cried. And I thought, I just, I'm 47. I just can't, I just can't keep doing this. Like, this is crazy. Get over this dream, right? Get over this dream of representing your country at the highest pinnacle of sport. It's done. And then to have Cynthia go, oh, get off your, get off the toilet, you know, like, come on. The destination's just changed. And yeah, it was, I couldn't have asked for a better gift because look, I mean, here I am at 62. <laughs> I hate to say 15 years later, still doing this silly sports stuff that I was told I would never do, you know, back in 98. So yeah, best gift she could have ever given me. And we're going to talk about longevity because you're only 62 years young. I reckon we'll come back within another decade, two decades in this woman's trying another sport and you go, oh no, but I reckon, I reckon deep down there's something formulating. There is, there is another, I, I actually went to a come and try day for um, sh shooting because of my police background. And when I went and the head coach, I don't know if he was Ukrainian or even Middle Eastern coach, uh, head of Australia. And I was hitting like bullseyes right? on the, on the prone and the rifle. And he's like, oh, we need to get you classified. And I didn't classify because I wasn't disabled enough. And the classifier said, uh, when you're in a wheelchair, come back and see us. So I reckon if my MS gets worse, then I'll go back. <laughs> Take that up. I figure, why not? You, you make fun out of what for a lot of people is a really challenging situation. I love your bright disposition. I love the optimism you have. You must have had days, though, where you've just gone, I can't do this. You must have had days where you've had to dig so deep, deeper than you ever thought you would go. Oh, most definitely. And, you know, I, I look back at the early 2003, probably 2003 would be the worst year of my life. And I had, you know, I had... I don't mind saying that I had my whole large bowel removed because the nerve had stopped working. Um, I'd had a bag put on and then I ended up with other health issues because of the ileostomy bag. So they took my whole large bowel out. Um, I then, I had uh, multi-resistant staph, which is not a nice thing to have um, in the incision. And once I got through that, I then ended up, I was in rehab and ended up having pain, had tumors on an ovary. So they took the ovary. I was back in, in the, the hospital. And then I went, I, I finally got out and I went to Canada to celebrate. I think it was my sister's 40th. And while I was there, I got more pain in the other side of my abdomen. And I thought, I'm not saying anything. I got home, ended up at a gyno-oncologist. All my markers were pointing to ovarian cancer. He said, everything's got to come out. Went back into hospital. This is all in one year. Ended up with multi-resistant staph again. And let me tell you, the drug they give you, vancomycin, for that just makes you so sick. I remember lying in bed thinking, I just want to die. Like, I just cannot do this anymore. This is the second time this year and I just can't do this. It was so bad that my mom flew down twice because they kept saying, this isn't looking good. But 
I came through it, you know, I, you know, I'd have the bad days and I think, Oh, stupid. What are you doing? Like, come on, you can get through this. I, I, I tend to have that um, ability to have some really bad days, but I try not to make it more than a day or two and then go, Oh, there's a lot worse people off in the world and you're still alive. So just get on with life. And I, and I think I, you know, when I was first diagnosed, I swore I would never ever use a wheelchair or a walking stick or anything like that, because that was giving into MS. And then when I had to, I realized that they are just opportunities to still live and contribute and do what you want to do. You just might have to do things a bit differently. And that's what I say about riding my trike. I mean, I ride this big trike and I'll tell you, I get some asinine comments from middle-aged men in Lycra, usually. And I just look at them and think, oh, you're not even worth talking back to because you have no idea how, number one, how hard it is to ride this thing. But at least I'm out here, you know, and at least I might not be on two wheels, but at least I'm out here and I'm still having fun and I'm still riding with everybody who's on two wheels. I just have three. And yes, it looks silly, but hey, I'm still riding, you know. Can I and- apologize on behalf of any of those <laughs> asshole middle-aged males in Lycra? And if we ever go on a ride together and they say, do I have permission? Oh, yeah. Oh, look, my my girlfriend that I ride with every Saturday, She, we were just in Wollongong for a week and we were riding um, all week. And some of the comments, and she had a few choice words to, for a couple of them actually came out, which was interesting. And I'm like, relax, relax. It's okay. No, I hate it when they're condescending. Like they might think they're being, like even here on Saturday, I we're, I just finished some efforts and I was going easy. And this guy goes by and he goes, oh, cool bike. And I, I thought, oh, good. I said, oh, thanks. And he goes, and really well done. Good on you for getting out. And I'm like, oh, fuck off. Like, you know, I did, I had that in my head. Claire voiced it <laughs> very loudly. So I'm just kind of like, you know, they have no idea. And It's yeah. that judgment, lack of awareness again. So while we're shifting the dial, talking to you, there's still a lot of work to do, huh? Oh, there's a heap of work to do. And, you know, compared to when I first started on this disability journey, things have shifted a lot, hugely, but we still have a long, long way to go, long way to go. I had to leave full-time employment because uh, my employer just wouldn't listen and just wouldn't understand. And it was funny because I worked, I was then an ambassador, I still am an ambassador for MS and going out and speaking to businesses that request somebody. And my employer actually called me and asked if I could come in and speak to HR because they had a team member with MS and they weren't quite sure what to do. And I thought, well, if you'd done this with me the year before, I might still be employed. And when I went in, they said, she was sitting in the room and the big boss said, now how can we help her? I said, why are you asking me? Why don't you ask her? She's not stupid. She has, she has a brain, she has a voice. And I looked at her and I said, and you need to speak up. You need to have a voice as well. Like speak up and ask for what you need. And I just looked at him and I said, you know, if you'd done this a year ago, I'd still be employed. I said, but, you know, you just have to ask. Don't be scared to ask if somebody needs assistance. 
Because I'll tell you, they'll tell you whether they want it or not. You know? Hi, it's Angela Poon. I'm thrilled to share some exciting news about the new venture Andrew and I have been working on together. Over the past five years, we've been managing two separate businesses, andrewmay.com and strivestronger.com, which has led to some confusion in the market. So to streamline our offerings and make it easier for our clients to engage with us, we've taken the best of both worlds through our learnings over the past few years, delivering large-scale programs to our corporate clients, and we have created the Performance Intelligence Academy. Based on invaluable feedback from our clients, this new offering provides a much clearer, scalable, and more comprehensive solution. Now, our approach begins with an assessment of both the physical and psychological energy through our Live Life Score, as well as an evaluation of mental skills to establish a baseline through our mental skills calculator. From there, our performance toolbox serves as a personal coach in your pocket, providing resources and tools to enhance well-being, boost productivity, and develop leadership capacity. In this toolbox, we have engaging micro lessons on influencing, coaching, energy optimization, personal productivity, and mental resilience. Our platform offers access to engaging webinars, community pages for networking, and a wealth of templates and learning resources. In addition to our digital offerings, we also specialize in hosting engaging events, including keynote presentations and workshops featuring a diverse range of presenters to keep participants energized and engaged. If you're looking to elevate the productivity and well-being of your team, we invite you to reach out to us. Whilst our new website will be launching in the coming months, you can inquire for more information through andrewmay.com. Stay tuned for further updates. Exciting things are on the horizon, so watch this space. Talking to you, Carol, you dance from beautiful storytelling and prose. And it's upbeat and dun, 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 and great punchline and wonderful timing and your face lights up. And then you drop into the message and I can feel it. I've had goosebumps a couple of times today. How have you learned the skills to dance between that? You know what I'm saying, right? You can be up, 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 up and then drop. And it's why you're such a beautiful keynote speaker. And at the end of this, we're going to give a shout out. If anyone is thinking of booking me, don't. Okay, book you. As we come into the new year and you're rolling out, what a wonderful, inspiring message. We'll go to the show notes, you can get all the links, but we'll, we'll do an official reach out to that at the end. But how did you develop that? And, and I'm asking you on two levels. One is, uh, I'll step out of you know, just the discussion, thought bubble. I'm watching you speak and, and tell stories and going, oh, that's clever. Yeah, as my speaker hat on, going, oh, I, I see what you've done there. But then you drop and it's this real resonance and seriousness and it's got meaning and you've had to work out some bloody hard models around mental skills. So the first question, did you have training around that? Did you have help? Did you have a psychologist? Did you have someone help you come up with these new models or did you just, did you just work that shit out yourself? Look, I think most of it I've just worked out myself. Um, I have done speaker training. You know, I, I mean... I think a lot of my storytelling comes from my time on the police force. I had to learn to be a good storyteller. I had to come up with stories of who I was going to be, especially in the undercover end of it. I remember, you know, when getting picked up by this pimp, um, another girl and I that were working together. She's like one of my best friends ever. And, um, I'll give a shout out to Deb because Deb will probably listen to this. Deb Harper. Deb, you're a bloody legend. Uh, this this is available on YouTube. We'll make sure Deb watches YouTube. You lit up then when you said Deb. I get the feeling there's a few stories you can't share us oh, that you and Deb. Yeah, there's a few I wouldn't share about with that Deb and I got up to. 
But um, we we worked with this this one guy trying to get us to work the streets, and you know we posed. I was twenty four, twenty five, and I'm posing as like an eighteen year old runaway. And I remember this this guy Tony saying to us, saying to me, "You're lying about your age." And I'm thinking, "Oh God, I've been had." And he and he and I said, "No, I'm not." He goes, "Yes, you are. There's no way you're eighteen. You're probably sixteen or seventeen. I went, "Yes." So you learn the skills of number one, lying and telling a good story. You know, you had to, and sometimes you had to do that to, for survival to make sure. And you had to remember what you said, and you had to be in, ingrained in that story that you were telling this person, because if you got caught out you don't want to think about what some of the consequences could be. So I think my storytelling can come, comes a lot from learning over the four years how to do that. And from friends like Deb and other, other people I worked with in that capacity and, and learning how to do that and how to be somebody different. Since I've been here, I mean, my, my job's, well, I worked with Australia Post, I can tell you who my employer was, but I started as a driver. So I learned different skills and I worked my way up from driver to admin to um, second in charge to delivery manager to HR manager and then in training and development. So in training and development, going out there and having to talk to people and train them. And so I think all the skills come from all those little bits and pieces in my life. And then of course, the adversity and getting through that adversity. Um, I think I've been very lucky in life that I had parents who, you know, instilled in me that I could be and do anything I wanted to be and do in life. I wasn't just because I was a female didn't mean a thing. I mean, look, I had a mother who joined the police force at 21 in 1957. Like it's, you know, wasn't done back then. In actual fact, she was one of the first women ever to work for the Morality Bureau when it was first formed, just as, you know, a woman on the man's arm type thing. So I, I think I get a lot of skills from both of those parents as well and their careers within that, that force. And my dad, my dad was fairly high ranking um, member when, when he left in charge of quite a big area and always in the media and always talking. So I think I learned a lot from him and how he spoke to people. So, you know, I have had speaker training. I've, I just did one up in Sydney, an immersion thing for three days, which was absolutely amazing. Um, but I've done two other courses. And, and I always think that you can still learn more from people. And so I'm hoping that all of those things combined together have given me that where for all of how to drop those little bombshells or, you know, tell a good story. So that family of origin is strong. So the role modeling you got from your parents in that environment, you had some good role models at work as well. But if someone rocks up to you and says, hey, Carol, I've had this diagnosis and I don't know how to process it and they don't have the same backbone or structure you've come from. And even what's happened to you, like you know, having parts of your body removed and constant operations and being just down there, there would have been some skills you've had to learn along the way what's, what's your advice to people though who are going through a really tough time and they may not have had the support the nurturing the upbringing you had and you still have so someone who's listening to this who goes well what an incredible story 
but I just don't have that same grit or that same resilience or mongrel. I feel I just feel totally stuck. What what would you say to them? I think at the beginning I did feel stuck. You know, my diagnosis, I didn't overcome my diagnosis just because Russ said, Oh, you know, we're in this together type thing. It probably took me a good six months to come to terms with the fact that I've gone from this 36-year-old fit, healthy woman to now somebody living with a progressive chronic illness and not knowing what was going to happen. So, you know, I went through every stage of grieving that you can imagine and like being pissed off and angry about it and, you know, pissed off at the world and not wanting to do anything to then going, I don't believe this is true. And, you know, all of those stages. And it probably took me a good year to realize that MS wasn't who I was. This is what I want. I, I like to, and I do talk to a lot of newly diagnosed people. I've got a lot of friends who've gone, oh, look, I've got a friend who's just been diagnosed. Would you talk to them? And I'm like, yeah. And I say, you've got to go through that process yourself. You've got to be angry and you've got to say, you know, go through all those stages. But in the end, MS is not who we are. It's just a part of us. And, you know, no matter what a doctor says to you, your MS will do what you and it want it to do. You know, and if I honestly believe if you have a really good mindset, especially if you're diagnosed with relapsing and remitting, there's different types of MS. So let's just go where I'm I'm at because I can't talk to progressive MS. I can't talk to, you know, secondary progressive. But I have relapsing and remitting and it comes and goes um, and leaves little shitty things behind. But, you know, I, I realized after that year that MS was just a part of me and that I had to decide how I was going to live. Was I going to let it rule my life or was I going to take charge and say, no, okay, if I have to do something and I can't do it one way, then I'll find a way to do it another way. You know, I was still able to swim. So I kept doing, and I, and I, and I thought nobody is going to tell me what I can and can't do like that doctor. Like I was going to still swim. I got out of football, which was okay. We won't tell Russ that because it was like, I was getting sick of running around in the winter through muck and, you know, crappy weather and, and, and so that was my excuse to get out of that. So I used that as an excuse. Oh, sorry, I can't run around the field anymore. I have MS. Um, so there's there's things that you can get good out of it. But, you know, when I, when I went back to work and the bosses I had at the time were extremely supportive. And you just have to find the people and keep the people around you who are going to be supportive of you and what you want to do. And each individual only knows their, they know their own body and they know what they can and can't do. It took me a long time to realize, okay, Carol, slow down. You know, if you have to have a nap, have a nap, you know, do the things that are going to get you through the day that are going to help you get through the day. And if that means sleeping in, if you're a person that just needs to sleep, then sleep in, you know? If, if you can then get up and go, I feel pretty good because I've had that extra sleep. For me, I'm a morning person. So it was like, boom, get up. Like, you know, I'm up at five. Just get up and go and do what I can in the morning because I know in the afternoon I'm going to be fatigued. And so then I can just rest. 
so that I can do what I want to do the next day. And take those days where you go, I feel pretty crappy, and let yourself have a pity party. Give yourself the ability to grieve because it's a life that has all, you know, is gone now that you thought you were going to have. No matter how minuscule or how large that is, it's, it's not the life that you planned for yourself. So you are allowed to grieve and I don't care how long you've been diagnosed for. I'm almost 26 years. I still give myself the time to go, this really shits me. You know, I get really, I'm pissed off. Why, you know, but I never let it get past that one day because I just, you know, I've had some amazing friends who have unfortunately passed way too early. And I just think, you know, I'm so lucky. I'm still here. And yeah, there's some shitty things in life that I deal with every single day. I have pain every single day, neuro pain, which just doesn't go away 24-7. gets worse when I train, gets worse when I race. But I love racing and I love training, so I deal with it. But I'm here, you know, and that's what I say to people. Just remember that you are still alive. And every everything, all the all the all the scientists say and all the, the stuff you can read, yes, you can deal with some pretty crappy things in MS. But it, if you have relapsing remitting, it will not shorten your life. So it's how you deal. If you think it's going to, yeah, it will. And it's about getting positive and saying, okay, MS is just a piece of me or, you know, whatever, whatever the diagnosis you have. It's just a part of me. It's not who I am. And who I am is... A, B, C, D, and I'm going to continue doing that and deal with the symptoms on the side. But as I said, let yourself grieve. Let yourself have those days. No matter how old you live to be, lock yourself away in a room and or just go to a park. I've been to the park and just sat on a bench for hours just going, oh, I just breathe in the fresh air, you know, and then go, okay, I've had enough of my, oh, I'm going to go back to it. And, do what I need to do. Have you read much about or have you done much work on mindfulness-based acceptance theory? No, no, not at all. It's exactly what you're talking about. And there's different approaches in psychology around coping. And you have cognitive behaviour therapy, which is the thoughts I have is directly related to the feelings and the behaviours I have. So there's that triangle between thoughts, feelings, behaviours and linked to emotions. And then another strategy as well, it's not one size fits all. But often with people who have had trauma or grief or are coming to terms with a big change in their life, mindfulness-based acceptance, which is being present, you know, mindfulness is both a skill and a state. You're so present, you're very mindful. But there's a real acceptance around that. So I was just really interested whether you had training in this or you're just a sharp cookie and you've worked this out. Well, the no, I do. I do. Um, funny enough, it was during lockdown here in Melbourne because, as you know, we were locked down a long time. The unenviable task, Melbourne, of the most lockdown city in the world. Exactly. Ah. But that app called Calm, I downloaded the app and I thought, right, I'm going to do this daily meditation thing. I'm like... I don't know about this stuff. I just thought, oh, well, well, we'll just try it. It's something to do every morning. So 10 minutes every morning, I I put my app on. I'm still doing it to this day. And um, I think it's it's actually it actually set me for the day. Once I got into it, once I was doing it, and it was like, oh, wow, you know, some breath work. And 
funny enough, my sister went from being a film producer and having her own production company to running a health and wellness center on five acres in Canada where she teaches breath work, meditation, yoga, <laughs> she does Reiki, and cold water therapy. Um, so I've heard a lot from her about, you know, especially mindfulness. And, and one of the girls that is, is a cyclist as well is a PhD in mindfulness. So you hear a lot, you know, as you're riding and, or you're on camp together, she talks a lot about it. But it's just something that I kind of fell into. And I love my 10 minutes in the morning. It just kind of sets the day. You know, even this morning, at, I got up at 4.30 to go for a ride. And I did my 10 minutes, 10 minutes before I went out. And it just kind of centers me, I guess. Being calm is a totally trainable mental skill. You can train to be calm. What so many people do is they train the opposite. They train to be jacked, nervous system jacked, brains jacked. So you're always on. Now, on is good to control it when you need to. But if you're on, 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 there's so many problems around that. So for anyone listening, absolutely, you can train your nervous system, your brain to shift state. So you can be up when you need to and down when you can as well. Now, I'm looking at your medals behind you. Can you ah. pivot? Grab a medal. Oh, what's, a, what's, a, what's a medal? Um, I'll get the big ones. I'll get the big ones. Thank okay. You. And, and tell us a story about that. All right. So my favorite medal would be from London because it was my first gold medal. And I had to race the men. So this is even better. It's a gold medal and I race the men. And uh, yeah, there's the, ooh, the big one. Actually, I'll take this virtual background off. That's got bling. It's, and it's, it's half a kilo. Um, here we go. Yeah, wow, that's a big there we medal. Go. It's massive. And it's um, got Braille all along the outside as well. So that's the London one. And then Rio was very interesting because they're a bit smaller. They weigh the same. I don't know if you can see that one, Rio. But listen to this. I don't know if you're going to hear this. Can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like um, maracas. <laughs> so the gold medal supposedly had uh, a higher pitch than the silver and a silver higher than the bronze. And they kept telling us it was for the vision impaired. And I kind of laughed and I said, I think it's just because they're Brazilian and they really like music. Because unless, if you were blind, unless you had all three, how would you know which one was which? And then I have to say my secret, second favorite is the one from Tokyo. And it's not gold, it's silver. And I won silver in the time trial at the age of 60. The gold medal winner was 31. And um, that was my gold medal moment. You know, that was my, yeah, I was just very happy to be there because the road race, I ended up crashing. The Canadian crashed in front of me and I had nowhere to go. And that was an interesting, it was a really bad crash on live TV. So my family and my 85-year-old mother were watching that live. And uh, with blood running down everywhere and thinking I wasn't too hurt, I got back on and continued. Thinking I'd been down for about 30 seconds, I'd actually been down for three and a half minutes. And when I got to the top of the 3K climb, I couldn't breathe. And so I pulled off. My first ever did not finish. 
and uh, I had a collapsed lung. So I uh, I ended up in hospital for six days with a chest tube in my chest. And, um, you know, everybody says, oh, that was just so bad, so sad. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to find the positives in it. And this is where I love to find the positives in everything, no matter how bad it is. And, you know, I'm actually the only athlete in the world out of the Olympics and the Paralympics that got to stay in Tokyo and become a tourist because I was not allowed to fly. So I spent two weeks traveling around Tokyo, looking, taking in the sights after I got out of hospital. You've turned a punctured lung into an opportunity to travel yeah, around yeah. Tokyo while everyone else has come home. So let's go to next year, Paralympics. You're going to be 63 years of age. I am absolutely on Team Cook. We're going all the way. Well, we're, we are, you are. <laughs> we're, well, we're riding on your coattails. Look, um, I'm pretty philosophical about this. There's a very, very slim chance of making it to Paris. At Road Worlds this year, I didn't medal. I was 45 seconds off the podium in the time trial, which is my favorite event. And, um, you know, the winner was, you know, the winner of the road race this year at Worlds was 26. Um, second place was 30, you know, so we have a very, very strong Australian team. And at this point, we only have five female spots and that's across track and road. So unless you are a gold medal chance, there's no hope in hell of making that team. And, uh, I have been told that I'm out of the top six, uh, that they're looking at, which I knew anyway, but there are other ways to make it. So sometimes they'll, what they call ring fence an event to make sure it's kept viable. So if a lot of countries aren't going to, they realize aren't going to send, say, a trike, they will ring fence the trike category and say, anybody who's competed in this internationally in the last two years must be taken or you'd lose that spot. The other way is that if I do well in the upcoming World Cups in the new year, Australia can actually apply for a bi what they call a bipartite. Um, position. There's five female and five male positions worldwide that can be applied for. And in Tokyo, two of my main competitors actually got to those positions. So there's always the chance. I've already talked to the head coach and I said, if I do well and I plan on doing well, I want you to apply for one of these positions. So he, he agreed. And he said to me, actually, it was funny. He said to me, he said, Carol, I'm definitely looking at you for the time trial because you seem to be able to pull a rabbit out of a hat when it comes to those races. And it's true. I just seem to be able to, yeah, pull it out when I need it. So, Talk to me about longevity, your view on longevity. At 62 years young, and I'm sure you've got a goal because your life is so goal-oriented and what you do, you're going to get to 100 plus, right? That, that's my goal. I really want to get to 100 plus. And there's longevity in my mother's side. Although my great-grandfather, Ike, passed away at 99 years of age, the family story goes that he was reading the Sydney Morning Herald and he was short-sighted so he could just see, it was the Marlborough Man ad and he could, could see down the bottom it said, smoking may cease your lifespan. So our family joke is silly old Ike, stopped smoking at 99, he could have kept going and he would have cracked 100. But, you know, that's the, the era where post- World War, they used to smoke back then. They used to rub tobacco with cow manure so it would go further. So very, very different world. And yeah, maybe if I could have different genetics, um, yeah, he would have had a heart attack at sort of 55 or 60. But, but talk to me about 
what what your view is on longevity because i i've never heard you once talk about aging or being old you'd say with a bit of tongue in cheek but i don't believe that you think at 62 63 it's time to give up no um i have decided that next year will probably be my last year racing internationally i mean that's you know it's just i was still ride and i was still race here in australia because i love doing it but i want to be able to give there's that position to somebody else that's up and coming to go over and be able to go and, 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 you know, do what I've done in the last 12 years. Um, I get really ticked off when, when somebody looks at an, a number that's attached to a person and decides what they can and can't do that just like, it doesn't matter if you're 12 or you're 62 or, 82 who says what you can and can't do and i think if you are passionate about doing something then just do it and you know what i've never ever thought about how old i want to live to it's funny i've never ever thought that because i my my mom's family like mom's 87 and she's the youngest and they my my auntie her her second oldest sister just died a year ago in october a year ago october and it was a freak accident where she fell and hit her head and should never have been sent home from the hospital and so had a bleed. But the others, you know, Betty's like 92 this year, mum's 80, 88 in May. And, oh, God, I shouldn't have said that on because she'll be listening to this. Sorry, mom, I shouldn't have said your age. Um, and her other sister's 89. Her mum lived to 94. So there is longevity on that side. And I've never really thought about an age because I just see them always getting older, but still, they're all still living on their own. They're all still doing their own thing. My mom, we lost my dad in 2016, but mom's just flourished. You know, she's just that my poor dad had Alzheimer's. So mom was his primary care and it was tough on her. And since then, she's just, you know, she walks with her girlfriends twice a week. She's still driving. She goes out to my sisters, you know, she's does yoga with them. She does the meditation. Like she gets all into that as well. And so I've never really looked at age as a real issue, I guess, because of the way they've lived. If anyone's listening to this and you're in your fifties, early 50s or your late 50s or your 60s or your 70s and you've had that limiting belief, oh, I can't do that because, or, you know, when you get old, I hear this all the time, Carol, oh, it's all right for you, mate, but, you know, I'm in my mid-50s or I'm 60 and I can't do that. I'm like, bullshit. Yes, as you roll through the decades, so we, we know from, my, well, I know from studying as an exercise physiologist and working my first iteration after I retired as an athlete, retired is such a bad word, but after I stopped competing at a high level, I then shifted into strength and conditioning. So we know most athletes will hit their peak at 30 years, give or take a few years, right? But to compete in life, absolutely, you can be fit and fast and strong and flexible through your 50s and 60s and 70s. I always say my life really started at 50. My first games were at 51. And to be honest, you talk about how we lose our, like our muscle mass and, and we get weaker with age. Just before Tokyo in 2021, and I'm almost back there now, I was leg pressing more at the age of almost, well, I turned 60 when we were in, to like overseas. So 
I was pressing more at the age of 59 than I was at the age of 25. So I'm still like, cause, cause my legs are different with my MS. So I'm still right now doing single leg press, my right leg, 102 kilos, my left leg, 82 kilos. Um, just before Tokyo, I was doing 120 and 100. So is that so, double, more than double your body weight? That would be. Oh, I wish. <laughs> Not really. No, I'm like, I raced in Tokyo at 64. That's so, not yeah, far off double your body weight. Come on, champ, give yourself a wrap. <laughs> I'm not 64 right now, though. Let, let, let oh me round out the math. So, <laughs> so just to put that in context, Wiz, to do a single leg press at double your weight is freaking awesome. Awesome. So, and I couldn't do that in my 20s. Could not do that. As a rower, I couldn't do that. I, I did that, that amount probably with both legs as a rower. And that was back in 2008. I you haven't know, exercised so. yet today because I've been at Manly. We launched our mental skills program this morning. I had an early start with my son, spending a bit of time dropping him at school. So after this, I've got a meeting and then I'm going to the gym. I'm going to rip myself a new one after talking to you. I'm going to be so sore in a few days. Right. Oh, don't let the dom set in. Don't let the dom set in. Carol Cook, this is the time in the interview that we call Performance Uncovered. I'm going to hit you with 13 questions. No you worries. You give me the first answer that comes to mind. Question number one, what is your favourite movie? Well, I love The Wizard of Oz. You have to see The Wizard, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. You'll find the answer, Wizard of Oz. If ever a wizard of Oz, if ever a wizard of Oz, the Wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. But I just watched another movie recently called Champions, which is brand new with Woody Harrelson, and he is court ordered to be a coach of a basketball team of people who are all intellectually challenged. And I kind of see a correlation between the two movies, believe it or not, Wizard of Oz, because, you know, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow and the Lion, they just needed belief. And then Woody Harrelson coaching this basketball team, they just needed belief. And and the two of them are pretty similar. So I have to say two. I can't I can't break it down. That's to one. a beautiful answer. Question number two. What song do you know all the lyrics to? <laughs> well, not a lot. Probably the national anthem of Canada and Australia, <laughs> because I know bits and bobs of every other song. When they come on, I can sing a few lines, and then it's like la 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 la. <laughs> no, that was said with absolute humility. Not many people know the national anthems to two countries. Question and number I can three. Do the, and I can do the Canadian one in French as well. Can you? Yeah. So three. What food can't you get enough of? Blueberries. Superfood. Oh, love blueberries. I have a blueberry bush, which I get about four kilos in the summer off of. And so I, I pull them off and freeze them so I can have them every day. And in the winter, I have to buy, I buy frozen berries so that I can have them every day. So. Question number four, apart from the two books that you have written, what book has had the biggest impact on your life? I'd have to say Dare to Fly by Janine Shepard. Don't know if you've ever read it or I know have. about Janine. Yeah. yeah. She's amazing. And it's funny, I was just at a, uh, not long ago, I was at a conference and she was speaking and I didn't get to be there that day and I was so disappointed. Question five, what is your most meaningful possession? It's the medal that I got for my being a member of the Order of Australia. Oh, how could we not talk about that? Yeah, I'm just, 
as an immigrant to this country, that was just something to become Carol Cook AM that was beyond my wildest dream. And so I feel very honored to have that. Part of doing research for you, one bit of information I found, a little charity you started has now raised, I think, at 19, maybe $20 million. Tell people where that money goes. That goes to people living with MS uh, in the form of scholarships to follow a dream. Actually, in October, we just virtually, I got to hand out 25 more scholarships to people on the eastern seaboard. So it's um, New, South, New South Wales, Victoria, ACT, and Tasmania. So, yeah, that was really cool to hear the stories of what people are going to do with it. Question six, what does your weekly fitness routine look like? Six cycling days. I have Thursday off. Six. So I do six cycles, yeah. And they range anywhere from like a 45-minute recovery to a three-hour ride. Uh, the three-hour is usually base endurance, but and the 45, obviously, recovery. The rest all have efforts in them of some sort. And three gym sessions, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Wiz, I'm tired talking to this woman. Like, seriously, I'm going to have a good hard look at myself and stuff and parading on stage like I'm some sort to, of former but athlete. But I go to bed at like 8.30, 9 o'clock so oh, I can do, do it. So, yeah. so you can get up and 4.30, yeah. 5.00, you got up? Usually, usually, yeah. Thursdays, I don't have to. Yay. Yay. Question seven, what is your favorite failure? You know what? I don't, I don't believe I have any failures. I just have stepping stones. So if, if something doesn't work out, I just think, okay, well, how can I do this differently? Or is there something else I can do? And I thank my mom for that, to be honest, because when I was nine, I wanted to be an Olympic gymnast for Canada. And this is definitely not the body of a gymnast. But, and I got told by a very uncaring woman that I was too fat to ever do gymnastics when I tried out for an elite club. And I was in tears and my mom grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, if you want to do gymnastics, you just keep doing it. But if you want to go to the Olympics, why don't you try another sport? And it was like that light bulb moment of, oh, I can try it, get, get to the same spot in a different way. I never, I was so fixated on that one, you know, that one thing that I didn't see the other things around me that I could possibly get to the same destination, but in a different way. So I, I don't like thinking that I have failures, just little stepping stones into what I want to do. Bit of a red thread theme throughout your life, Carol. Yeah. You can't do this, really. I think we can, screw we can thank you. my mum for me going, screw you, I'm going to do it. <laughs> this next question I'm, I'm curious on because you charge at life in your sport. You charge at life in your business, writing books. Start a little charity, $20 million later. Everything you do requires an effort and an intensity. So what do you do to recharge? What do you do to downregulate and switch off? I have a lot of naps. <laughs> I love naps. Like I'll say to Russ, I'm just going to lie down for half an hour and an hour and a half later I might surface. Um, or I read. I've got so many books on the go and it's crazy because I'll start one and I'll see another one and go, oh, I'll do that. And I'll be reading two or three at the same time and just pick them up. And I love just having it like time to sit down and uh, read a real book. Not, not, I've got a whole bunch of books on like my iPad and on the Kindle app, but it's different when you hold a book. It's just, I love that paper 
the smell of the paper and the feel of the paper. And yeah, so reading and a nap, my two favorite things. Question number nine, what do you do to prepare for a performance moment? So that's a moment that really matters. That could be a big keynote to a couple of thousand people. It could be an important meeting or it could be your next race. First, I make sure I've done the work beforehand. Don't leave things to the last minute because it never works out if you do that. And usually, like when I talk about racing, when we talk about racing, I have a real set routine on race day. Most of my races, other than Paralympic Games, but World Cups, um, World Champs, my races are usually first thing in the morning. And so it's good because I'm a morning person anyway. So I have a very set routine of what I eat, what time I have to be there, the warm up that I do. It's exactly the same all the time. And for speaking, I make sure like I'm just ready before the day. So I try and know what the venue's like or who's going to be there and, and just make sure I know what the hell, well, I do know what the hell I'm talking about. So making sure that, you know, I'm confident I haven't changed anything or, you know, or knowing that there's somebody there that doesn't like it's swear word, you know, or yeah, if there's little nuances that way, making sure I talk to the organizer to find out those little bits and bits and bobs. So being well prepared before the day. Also, it's what we call a pre-performance routine. So having that structured routine before a race or before a presentation, I'm very similar. I have a routine before I speak, a routine before I do podcasting. If you followed me around, people might think I'm OCD and they could be correct, but it is. It's, <laughs> that, it's not actually muscle memory. That's incorrect. It's nervous system memory. So your nervous system then kicks into gear. So Because I don't ever really get nervous the start of a race or even, the, or even when I'm giving the talk because... I just know what I'm supposed to be doing. Question 10, what keeps you up at night? Absolutely nothing. I don't think I don't think there's many nights at all that I've ever gone to bed going what if or what yeah, no. You're the only person that has said that I love it. So I'm going to roll on to question number 11. What is your number one productivity tip? Oh, I have a diary. Like I write lists. I, I make sure I split my diary in half, my things for work that I need to do go on one side, things that I training and what needs to get done. So I know every day, I even put it on a calendar in the, in the kitchen for my husband. So he knows exactly what I'm doing, where I'm at. And yeah, and, and just I tick them off one at, one, time, one, one at a time during the day. Question 12, who has been your most influential mentor or mentors? Well, other than my parents, I would have to say, um, actually, somebody who you should talk to on this podcast, Tammy Van Wissa. I don't know if you know Tammy. Tammy's uh, one of our best marathon swimmers ever. She's swum the length of the Murray. She's the only person who's ever swum Bass Strait. Um, Tammy herself oh, is I read a about her. Yeah, I read about her recently. And recently, she's been fighting breast cancer. But I met Tammy before I moved here. I was here on holidays. I was sitting on a beach after doing an open water swim. And I was by myself. And she was with a whole bunch of friends. And she just said, come on and join us. And I became very good friends with Tammy and, and trained a bit with her while I was here on holidays. And I've just followed her career and just the tenacity and doing things that people said she could never. 
attempt to do, swim bass straight. Well, she did it. You know, swim the length of the Murray River. Well, she did it. So, yeah. Bass straight is bad enough in a boat. Oh, yeah. Let alone swimming. Yeah, if you can connect me with Tammy, we'll chat about that offline. I'd love to, to have a yeah, chat to her. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Question number 13. What is your definition of high performance? Being the best that you can be. And that doesn't mean that you have to be an elite athlete or a CEO of a company or president of a, of a country. High performance is just being the best that you can be. No matter what you do, you could be a toilet cleaner. You know, if you're giving it your all and you have like the cleanest bathrooms in the world, that's high performance. Yeah. How many interviews, how many podcasts, how many presentations do you do in an average year? Like how, how, how often do you perform? Oh, uh, just, just speaking perform? Probably 25. And I've listened to a few other podcasts. You perform all the time. So can I thank you for being the best you can be today, so for turning up? Because there's one thing to turn up and do a podcast. I've really enjoyed the dance today and the syncopation between the performer and, and, and the storytelling. And I've, I've really enjoyed the drop. And, and, I, and I've had goosebumps at times today. I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening back to this. One of the things when you do interview people You've got one eye on the conversation and one on you know, closed loops and where you're going. And then when you listen back and you can just relax and I'll do this when I walk or I you know, might go on a bike ride with the headphones in and just have it down really low, but don't tell many people because you know, they, they, they might frown on that. You've got to fill in your cycling time. What you need to get are the shocks. Have you seen the shocks? That I have. Are they, do they, are they good? They're fabulous. So I use them all the time because you can hear what's going on, but they, they play on the um, – the front oh, of your ear. Jaw, jawbone, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. And they're fabulous. Yeah. But th thank you for just being so personal today and, and that oh, balance well, between the performer and your persona and the person. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great. It's been great. It's been fun. Yeah, now, I did say there'll be a call out at the end. For people who have got conferences coming up with a big corporate audience listens to this podcast and they've got a conference, you are the person they're going to book. How do people reach you? Where's the best place to find you? Well, the best place to be on my website, which is just carolcook, cook with an E, dot com dot au. And um, you can contact me through, through the website. Um, yeah, and basically my keynote is called The Force Within. So it's, it's finding that best of you within. Bit of a play on words. What my book was called as well, which was a play on words, The Force being the police force and the force within each of us so yeah now that would be great thank you very much for uh for the shout out and may the force be with you oh yeah exactly i was oh, gonna no, use that but i thought it was already taken <laughs> i'm thinking well i do that wizard's just looking at me just shaking his hair yeah <laughs> that's good <laughs> hey, oh, oh, seriously thank you so much i've really enjoyed our conversation today oh well thank you so have i andrew The Wizard and I are back in the studio to do our reflection on Carol Cook. And wow, what a reflection it is, Wiz. But before we reflect, can I just say a big thank you to everyone for listening to the Performance Intelligence Podcast. We've had a massive spike the past three months. Our listeners have more than doubled. So to all of those new people, welcome. We love having you here. And to those listeners who've been with us for some time, we've been going over a year now. We love that you keep coming back and supporting us. So a big thumbs up to everyone who's supporting the podcast. 
Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for listening. Now, Reflection, Carol Cook. Do you ever finish an interview and, oh, we, we are blessed. We just talked to so many different people, mate, in this studio yeah. and via Zoom, which we did with Carol. And then I, I finish some of the podcasts and go, and this is a job. Like, we actually get to do this as part of our job and to learn and listen and grow. Oh, gosh. Where do you start? Just... For me, it's the word inspirare, that Latin word, which means to breathe life into. If you listen to that podcast and you don't feel a little bit moved by that woman, I don't think you're living. Absolutely. And this is somewhat related. I was thinking about this. I saw a meme on the internet the other day that said, Vlad the Impaler didn't start impaling people till his mid-30s. So that means you've still got time to make your mark on history. And when Carol went into that talent ID, I, I didn't realize how old she was at the time. I thought maybe she would have been at most mid-30s and then she said I was 45 I was blown away I was like what and like we're just at the start of this story of her becoming a Paralympian and winning all these medals I was blown away by that Vlad the Impaler I love how you get something that seems totally obscure but you build it in and people listen and go yes wizard I get what you're talking about now the energy on that theme still I'm breathing life into I mentioned this in the podcast, it was the dance, and I really enjoyed that, like mm. to see that Carol would bring the energy up. And then when I asked her, do you consciously drop that? She gave me a little smile. I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> I know that. So did, did you feel that as well, the, the syncopation or we talk about operating rhythm or pulsing? I could feel that in the interview with her. Oh, absolutely. I was taking notes. And I was like, oh, we were in a real exciting. It was almost like watching a TV show or reading a book or something. We're in the exciting bit now. She's in the race. What's going to happen? Oh, no, she's crashed. And then she's come back down and we're okay. And yeah, it was nuts. It was a real dance between storytelling, but there were some moments there as well when she really dropped into feeling it, you know, going back there. You can tell she's so passionate about diversity and inclusion. And and even I felt myself reflecting on this with, I'm not sure whether you did, but I've had an unconscious incompetence in the past thinking, yeah, I'm diverse. I've got friends from all different races and yeah, you know, I, I love mixing with lots of different people. But I've had blind spots as well, and, and having more conversations with people like Carol opens my eyes up more that we've still got a long way to go. What I absolutely love about Carol is that she doesn't use her disability as a crutch. If anything, she uses it as a reason to keep going. Don't tell that woman you can't do something. I think that's a way to like motivate her. Hey, and, and what about at the end, we were speaking about books, and I just made a little throwaway statement. Hey, what if you think about your next book is around life force, you know, breathing life into what you're doing? And then she said, oh, you're doing it, so I can't wait to see it. I actually think that's going to be a book. Yeah, I think I'm trying to keep track. I think that's maybe three or four books you might have inspired so far on this podcast. Well, what's interesting is when you have a conversation with someone like Carol, Richard Burton was another one. I know Berto's doing his book now. But when you sit there and you really do dig into someone's story and have a conversation and you can see the, the patterns, it's so much easier to do this, mate, on someone else rather than yourself because you get caught up in your story and, no, no, I've got to tell that story. No, no, they won't like that story. So I, I really am looking forward to seeing that book. Yeah, I think that would be an absolute page turner, especially if you don't know a story like I did and I was hooked on every word. Well, that was interesting. I said to you before the interview, do you know much about Carol? And you said, no, purposely I'm going into this not knowing much at all. So well, what are your thoughts? What was what was the key learning for you? Or what have you taken away from this? Like, like I did, we've had a break in between finishing recording and doing the reflection. And I went for a quick walk and I really did think, oh God, when I complain sometimes or I'm tired or I moan or I bitch or complain, Really? Like, <laughs> harden up a bit, mate. 
Yeah, like you said, I had no idea. I mean, all, all I'd heard was that you said she's very inspirational. I thought, right, I'm going to hold off. I'm not going to look her up. I'm not going to Google her name or anything. And then, yeah, we got into it and I was learning about it for the first time. And like we said, it's just this incredible story. And I was saying she didn't start this sort of Paralympian until she was 45. But even then, like, she was an undercover cop before that. I had no idea. I was, what is this? <laughs> well, we've already mentioned it. But can I bring up the blowjob story? <laughs> I looked at you, you looked at me, and I think we were both saying, is she really talking about this? I think it was six or seven minutes into the podcast. That just, that, it just lit up the podcast. And when she came back to that story at the end, she was talking about how to train as a speaker. I thought maybe you should get some of your clients out on the street corner one of these days to give them a bit of a boost. I think we need to get them to listen to it for context. <laughs> Another theme that really came out for me was, was not even looking at your age as a barrier. It's not like she's gone, oh, hey, I'll be 63 when I'm in the Olympics. And she spoke about her sisters and her mum and longevity. So Carol's had a wonderful amount of role models in her life as well who are not going, oh, I'm 50 now, I'm 60 now. They're still living life. Yeah, I can only hope that uh, I'm like that when I get a bit older. At the moment, I'm almost 30 and it's looming above me like a dark cloud. Come on, mate, you're almost (laughs) 30. Gosh. What else did you take out of that? She kept using that phrase, don't tell me what I can and can't do. And I thought that was awesome. I mean, it going back to TVs and movies again, it reminded me of the show Lost. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, it was very popular back I in the day. I watched a few episodes from memory. Didn't Lost get lost in yeah, the Yeah, it sort of went off the rails a bit. Um, but there was a character in it called uh, John Locke. And that was sort of his catchphrase was don't tell me what I can and can't do. And at the start, you're like, oh, geez, he's pretty touchy about that. But then you find out he used to be in a wheelchair and now he can walk again. And it just, every time she said that, all I could think of was that in the back of my mind. Was, oh, yeah. Any people who are new to the podcast and you haven't heard Wizard, when we do a reflection, every reflection goes to a movie, to a TV show. He's got a photographic memory when it comes to movies and TV shows. If only I could find a way to make some money off it. You will, mate, you will. If you build it, they will come. My final message to everyone listening to this and and also this was one of my reflections play the long game and when you look at life it is a series even the syncopation or the pulse in that discussion there's some highs and then some lows but playing the long game and and really having a purpose or a meaning helps you get through that so there's, there's just so many other themes I'm sure I'll think about on drive and purpose and confidence and having a good team around you from a mental skills point of view even without Carol saying oh it was this skill it was that skill it was just so rich in looking at what are those skills you need do you have them if not go and find them develop them and play life yeah you mentioned at the end of the podcast you were going to go smash yourself in the gym so I think I'll go have a crack tomorrow at lunchtime right Wiz let's get out of here let's lift